0: Well, this Sunday has been a little bit of an adventure to get to. Uh, we had a uh, guest worship leader who was going to help lead us. Uh, unfortunately, got sick and wasn't able to. And so, so grateful for, for Tia and Jonathan for stepping up in some of those leadership roles there. We had members of our team that weren't able to uh, be part of the team. And so, there was adjustments made, some more. Troy found out this morning that he was going to do slides. And so, grateful for his willingness. This to be coerced into doing this. Uh, in, in all, I'm bringing all of this up because I, I think our, our team has done a fantastic job. I, I, I'm thinking through our first two years of being a church uh, that, that we just hit our two year anniversary of uh, how much would that have crippled us to have so many changes happen in w- one week, and yet to have so many people who love this church who are willing to be flexible to help lead us in worship is something I'm so grateful for. So after service, if you see anyone part of our worship team, if you see Troy, if you see Philip afterwards, I I am probably annoying them with how much I'm saying thank you. So can you help uh, lessen that load from me and say thank you to our team for for all the adjustments that they've been making every single day of this week uh, to lead up to this Sunday service. And we are uh, going through our series in the book of Luke together, and we've gotten to a place where it's on Jesus' final week. He is going to his death And and more than that, in Luke chapter 22, it, it all captures the day before he dies. It's not like this death is something that sneaks up on him, that he didn't realize it was coming. All of the book of Luke has predicting that, Has been predicting this. This is happening. Jesus has been saying, I am going to die, and it is for you that I'm doing this. Uh, more than that, last week we talked about how all of the Bible, all of history has been pointing to Jesus coming, Jesus dying, showing us the significance of what this is. And so this week of Jesus' life, this final week ends with him on a cross, mocked, dying for the sins of the world. Now that's a little bit of a contrast with how he starts that week. He enters into Jerusalem like a king, a crowd of people praising him, treating him like royalty. It's a little bit of a contrast between those two pictures. Treated like a king and then dying on a cross. But all throughout this week, the city of Jerusalem that he has gone into, it's been abuzz with excitement. People have flocked to Jesus to to hear from him, to see what it is that he might do to learn from his teaching. Other people have gone to him to try to prove him wrong, to try to trap him, to show that they were better. All around the city, there's no getting away from the fact that Jesus entered in such a public way, such such a kingly way that there is excitement, there is enthusiasm, there is anticipation. The the city of Jerusalem is a powder keg about to explode. He enters like a king. What will this king do? Is he going to take power? Is he going to kick out Rome? People are so eager to see what Jesus will do. And, And no one more so than his disciples those who have been following him from the very beginning, those who have greater expectations on him than anyone else, what will our King Jesus do? Is he gonna set up God's kingdom like we've been anticipating? They have all of these hopes and dreams built into him, but all the while they've been missing what he's been teaching them. They've been missing that he is saying, I've come to die. I'm setting up a kingdom, yes, but it's not in in that way you're expecting me to. And and the disciples are being told all of this and still missing it. They're so focused on what they're hoping Jesus does that they're missing what he's doing. To the point where on this, this day, this Jesus' final night before he dies, one of his disciples will hand him over to be killed. Another one will deny ever knowing him and all of his followers will betray him. We talked about how Jesus is this king, but in an unexpected way. What is more unexpected than this? That Jesus is the betrayed king. It's Troy, it's looking like we might've had a little mix up on the slides. Those are from last week. Uh, so we might've missed uh, what the slides are for this one. But uh, while we're figuring out slides in the background, we can, we can uh, land on this. This is what we're gonna focus on for right now. Jesus is the betrayed king. And as we look throughout Luke 22, we see story after story of his followers, those closest to him, betraying him, letting him down, uh, turning uh, turning their backs on him in, in really visible ways. And one of the first places that we see that Jesus is betrayed is is by probably his most famous betrayer. Jesus is betrayed by Judas. There we go. Thanks, Troy. Appreciate it. Jesus is betrayed by Judas. And we see this in uh, Luke 22, starting in verse 21. So right after giving us the Lord's Supper, Jesus says, this cup's been poured out for you as a new covenant by my blood. The very next word, Jesus says in, in, in verse 21, but behold... The hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the son of man, a name Jesus used for himself, for I am going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they begin to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Jesus just talked about how he is going to die. And then he says, one of you with me at this table, you are the one who's going to betray me. You will hand me over to be killed. Now, Luke isn't trying to make this some piece, uh, like dramatic piece of which one of them might it be. He's told us. In fact, he's told us multiple times. Uh, Luke 22 starts off by saying, Judas went to the chief priests and the officers to come up with a plan to hand Jesus over for money. But more than that, Luke chapter 6, he gives us a list of of Jesus' disciples, his closest followers, and it ends by saying, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. No sense of dramatic tension in Luke. But even if you haven't been reading Luke, you, you probably could have figured out or guessed that Judas is the one who's going to be this betrayer. It's one of those instances where the language of the Bible shows up in our language, so, for example, uh, say a 16th seed beats a number one seed in what we would call a David and Goliath matchup. And, and maybe you're upset with me for bringing that up. You're like, that ruined my bracket on day one. And, and so, I, 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 would just, I would just say to that, like, I mean, was it really that shocking? These upsets happen every year. The writing was on the wall, a phrase that comes to us from the book of Daniel. And when someone is a traitor, we have two names in this country that we can call them. Benedict Arnold or Judas. Judas becomes synonymous with being a betrayer. And this is someone who was close to Jesus, who traveled with him from the very beginning, who heard all of his teaching, who saw him love people so thoroughly, who saw his miracles, his incredible works. And that one, this one who was so close to Jesus, he is the one who betrays him, who turns him in to be killed. And as, as they're at this table together, Jesus says, one of you who are with me will betray me in such a way. And while we might know that that's Judas, either from reading Luke or from our own language, Jesus' followers are caught off guard by this. He says, "One of you will betray me," and they're not like, "Oh, he must be talking about Judas. He's always dressed in all black, hanging out in shadowy corners, being caught whispering mischievous plans to himself." No, they're they're trying to figure out who is it. Who could it be? Behind the language, there's this little bit of fear. Like, is it me? They all recognize that they have this capacity to betray Jesus in this way. But rather than listening to Jesus' words, rather than than thinking, well, how can we help you? Is there any way we could stop this? How can we put an end to this betrayal? They all start to get defensive. They all start to point the finger. It says that they're having this discussion, this this dispute is coming out, this little bit of showing, well, it can't possibly be me. While Judas is the one who betrays Jesus to his death, They are completely missing out on the significance of what Jesus is saying. I am going to my grave. And they're all focused instead about deflecting, showing that it can't be them. Jesus is the betrayed king. And we see that as he's betrayed by one of those closest to him, by Judas. And if that was the only betrayal that Jesus faced going uh, on this final night, that that would certainly be enough, right? A a betrayal that leads to his death. But unfortunately, Judas isn't the only person who betrays him this night. Jesus is also betrayed by one who was in his closest circle, one that was probably his closest disciple out of, uh, or at least one of the two or three closest disciples out of all of the 12, Jesus is the betrayed king as he is betrayed by Peter, one who is with him constantly. This is from verse 31. Jesus is saying, Simon, Simon, which is uh, another name for Peter. Peter, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And then verse 33, Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So just as we saw earlier that this announcement that one of you at this table will hand me over to be killed and all of the disciples instead go to this little bit of deflectiveness, this defensiveness to so, say, well, it can't possibly be me. Jesus says, when you will fail, all right, I pray that your faith may not fail and you will turn back to me. But Peter uh, doesn't listen to it. He doesn't, he- he's not hearing this warning that Jesus gives to him. He's not questioning like, well, how can I, how can I change? Is there any way that I could do to stop it? He's not listening to Jesus' words. He instead goes to being incredibly defensive. Oh, I would never, I would never do anything like that. I'm your most loyal follower. And unfortunately, Jesus' words come to be True. As later on in uh, the passage, this is what we, we find in verse 59. Uh, Jesus is arrested. He, uh, Peter follows him and he's confronted by, by someone who says, aren't you one of those who follows Jesus? And, and he denies ever knowing him. And then this happens again. And then finally, this is what we see in verse 59. It says, after an interval of about an hour, still another, another person comes up to Peter and says, certainly this man was with him for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed and the Lord looked, or turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Jesus is on this last night of his life. He knows he's about to be arrested. He knows that his disciples are about to turn their back on him. He tells Peter this, and Peter's so focused on saying how he could never possibly do such a thing. He's loyal to Jesus all the time. He'll go uh, follow him to, to prison. He'll follow him to the grave. And the very first opportunity he has to put that to the test, Peter denies him three times to save his own skin. Jesus is the betrayed king, as he is betrayed by one even as close to him as Peter. But the sad reality of Luke 22 is is that this isn't a story of two exceptions. Out of all of Jesus' followers, two of them uh, betrayed him this night, and Judas and Peter. No, unfortunately, all of the disciples betrayed Jesus. Jesus is the betrayed king, as he is betrayed by all of the disciples. This is what we read in verse twenty-four. It says, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he, Jesus said to him, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather let the greatest among you become as the youngest. So So who is the greatest? Well let that be the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves for who is greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not who reclines at table? That's who he would say is the greatest person, right? They, they get to have luxury and ease. But Jesus says, I among you am the one who serves. So who is the greatest? What's well, the one who takes this posture that I'm doing? But, but can you imagine this, this flow of the passage? Jesus is with his disciples. He took the bread and he says, this is my body given for you. I am about to die this death that should have been ours. He took this cup and he says, a new covenant, something new is happening because of my blood. I am dying for you. And the disciples essentially say, yeah, yeah, whatever. Uh, Jesus, which one of us would you say is the best? How do you even get to that place? Jesus is, is going to this incredible, uh, to incredible lengths to give us the greatest sacrifice in the history of the world and his disciples are so focused on other things. You see it later. The, uh, Jesus goes to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, where he eventually is re- arrested in that garden after he's done praying. And he tells his disciples, uh, can you pray for me in this time? And he's in so much anguish that Luke describes him as sweating blood that he's focused on this painful death he's about to go to and, and he's focused on how he is going to satisfy God's judgment for all sins. It is, it is this absolute moment of turmoil. And Jesus goes back to his disciples after that, after being so overwhelmed and he finds his disciples asleep, not praying for him like he asked them to, not providing him any sort of comfort in the most trying of times, Instead, we find Jesus utterly alone. He has these people who have been following him, who ought to have known him, who've ought to seen what it is that's coming. And when it came to this final night of Jesus, they're so focused on which of them is best. They're so focused on what they think is important. And they betray Jesus in this time. Jesus is the betrayed king. And maybe we can we can sympathize with Jesus a little bit in the story. Because all of us, you and me, we've all been betrayed by someone close to us. We've all been let down by someone that we thought was loyal or faithful to us. Maybe this was someone that we work with who ended up taking credit for something that we did. Maybe it's it's, uh, someone that we thought was a friend and they demonstrated they very much so are not. It could have been uh, someone that we trusted with a bit of information that, that, that was so special and private to us and they didn't care for that information like we wanted them. They didn't, they didn't guard it. Maybe it was someone at church or we have an experience where we felt betrayed by an entire church with how we were treated or a family member. In all of these times, we have all felt the sting of betrayal. And what's hard is that, that there is pain in that moment. There, there's hurt that comes with it, but it's not a one-and-done moment. Being betrayed isn't, all right, well, I'll we'll probably be over it tomorrow. No, we carry. It's such a significant hurt to us. Being betrayed is so significant that we carry it with us. It will impact how we view that other person. We don't go back to how things were the next day but it doesn't just impact that person. It, it, it impacts our ease with trusting other people going forward. Being betrayed causes us to, to try to protect ourselves. So we retreat. We distrust other people. We, we do whatever we can to, to just protect ourselves. You can only be betrayed by someone who's close to you. So maybe we say, well, I just won't be close to anyone then. So I can't be hurt like this anymore. Being betrayed has a lot of immediate pain and a lingering and lasting pain as well. So when we look at this Jesus, who has this group of people with him, he's closer with them than anyone else in this world. And they all betray him in such a visible way. In the, big, in, in the night where he is, is desiring to be with his people, desiring to have them know what's happening, they all turn away from him. One hands him over to be killed. One says that they've never even met him before. And all of his disciples let him down in this most significant of times. Jesus is the betrayed king. But as you read through Luke chapter 22, there are, there are two big themes that emerge. One of them is how Jesus is constantly betrayed. Hopefully we've set that up well to this point. But there's another theme that's going alongside that's just as prominent, that's just as persistent. And that is how Jesus is utterly loving to other people throughout. Jesus is the betrayed king who never stops loving. I mean, think about it. When you and I are betrayed, we, like I said, we, we hunker down. We try to protect ourselves. But Jesus doesn't do anything like that. He continues to love other people. It's so different than how we respond to being betrayed. I might try to, to cut people off, but Jesus instead draws near to them. I, I might stop trusting other people, but Jesus actually entrusts his disciples with more. They pro- they're proving that they can't be trusted with what he's given them, and he's giving them more at this time. I might try to give up on people when I've been betrayed, but Jesus never does that. All throughout this passage, we see Jesus' love poured out for those who are turning their backs on him. The first place that we see Jesus' love is in how he gives his disciples assurance about their future. We see Jesus show love through giving assurance. Uh, This is from Luke chapter 22. It's in verse 28 so, right after they're having this debate over which one of us is the best, Jesus says these words to them. So, you are those who have stayed with me in, these, in my trials. Not, are you going to stay? You are the ones who have stayed with me in my trials. And so, I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. I'm assigning to you a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Do you see how incredible of a promise, of an assurance this is to Jesus' disciples? They're all so focused on what they think Jesus is gonna do. He entered the city as a king. He's coming to set up a kingdom. And now Jesus is using that buzzword. He says, my kingdom. And you can like almost see like, yes, we're talking about the kingdom aspect. And even though they completely miss what kind of king Jesus is, a suffering one who dies for the sins of the world, even though they miss what kind of kingdom is, it is that he's bringing not one by the sword, not one expelling Rome, but one for the entire world that will last for all times. Even though they miss all of these things, Jesus doesn't give up on them in that moment. He doesn't stop. He still gives them assurance of their certain future in him. Where you and I might, in that moment of being so let down by by these disciples, uh, we might say something like, well, forget it then. I'll just get other disciples. Maybe they can be faithful. Or even disciples, well, who needs them? I can do this all on my own. Jesus doesn't do that. These followers who so let them down, Jesus faithfully and lovingly says, this is your certain future with me in my kingdom, eating and drinking there, sitting on thrones, having these seats of of authority in that kingdom. It's this incredible promise that's given to people who break every promise to Jesus. Jesus shows his love despite being betrayed by them through his assurances that he gives to them. The second way Jesus shows his love, uh, Jesus is the betrayed king who never stops loving by showing his encouragement, especially to Peter. I mean, you think about Peter and all that he's failing in this moment. He's one of those arguing which of us is the greatest. He's one of those who fell asleep when Jesus asked them to stay alert and pray. He is the one who denies ever knowing Jesus three times and yet he is the one that Jesus prays for That Jesus encourages. There's some weeks where a phrase or a particular verse really sticks out to me. Like, I, I can't stop thinking about it. It becomes really meaningful uh, to, to me. And uh, so then I force that upon you. You now have to look at something that I thought was special. And, and that, that is verse 32 from this week. Uh, verse 32, we, we've already read it, but it, it says, it, it, this is Jesus' encouragement to Peter. He says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Think of how special that is. Jesus knows what Peter is about to do. He knows he's going to deny him. He knows he's betraying him in so many ways. And he says, I have prayed for you. And not in like the condescending, like feigning, taking the high road that I might do when someone hurts me. It's like, oh, well, I'll be praying for you. That's not the tone that Jesus is using. He is earnestly saying, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And this is the very reason why Peter's able to go through this. This is the very reason why his faith does not fail. In the midst of him being betrayed by Peter, Jesus is giving him exactly what he needs but then he goes on with this incredible gracious sentence he says and when you've turned again when you've come back when you believe in me once more when you're trusting me when you've turned again strengthen the brothers encourage them too it's 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 this beautiful gracious passage because what you may have noticed Jesus doesn't lead with Peter's failure He doesn't start this conversation off with, you know, you're going to deny me three times today. He starts with, when you come back, when you turn again, strengthen the brothers. And to think about how incredible it is that Peter is given this encouragement. I mean, when we think about all of the failures of the disciples, save for maybe Judas, isn't Peter's failure, isn't his betrayal the most obvious, the most dramatic? I mean, you go to the end of the book of Matthew and you find there, Peter denies Jesus. You go to the end of the book of Mark, Peter denies Jesus. Here at the end of the book of Luke, Peter denies Jesus. The end of the book of John, Peter denies Jesus. All throughout history, the death of Jesus has been so associated with the failure of this, one of his closest followers. And he is the one that Jesus says, strengthen the brothers. He is the one that Jesus encourages in this way. And he he doesn't say, uh, when you turned again, you'll be welcomed back with open arms. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing to say? To know, to have certainty that you'll be forgiven, you'll be welcomed back, even though you betrayed? No, Jesus goes beyond that. He doesn't say when you've turned back, the, the other brothers will be here, the other disciples will be here to encourage you and strengthen you to help you get back on your feet. Wouldn't that be beautiful? To know that you wouldn't lose your place, that this, that this failure doesn't, doesn't mean that he's an outcast, that he can't be around his, uh, these people anymore. That would be so beautiful. But Jesus goes beyond that. He says when you've turned, when you come back, which I know you will, strengthen the brothers. You Peter, chief of all the betrayers, you are the one that I'm still gonna be working through. You are the one who can do this for the other disciples. You are the one that I am encouraging. I really like verse 32. Jesus is the betrayed king who never stops loving, and he shows his love to his disciples by issuing them a warning by warning them about what it is that they're about to go through. Uh, we didn't read it earlier, but verses 35 through uh, 38 gives this exchange um, with Jesus warning his his disciples. And it's, it's a little bit of a tough one to understand, but essentially in it, Jesus is saying, hey, you remember when I've sent you out before, which is uh, captured earlier in Luke? You remember when I sent you out before, you didn't have to take money with you. You didn't have to take a bag. You didn't have to do anything to try to defend yourself because our, our ministry was popular and people wanted to be part of it. People wanted to provide for You, you you were safe while you went there. But he's warning them, everything's changing now. Everything's going to be different. You're going to have to provide for yourself because you'll be met with hostility, with, with people looking to harm you, with, with a lack of safety. You're going to receive similar treatment to what I'm about to go through. I, I mean, I think about when I've been betrayed by someone, I rarely... Well, that's probably giving myself too much credit. I don't want to lift a finger to help that person who hurt me. I, and in fact, my mind goes to thoughts on revenge, which I'm mortified that that's where my mind goes to, but that's where what I think about for people who have hurt me. And what Jesus doesn't said is he offers this warning. Things are gonna be hard. I how, how much love for a person does it take to do that? You are betraying me in such a visual way I love you so much that I want to warn you about what's coming your way. All throughout this passage, we see story after story of Jesus being betrayed by those closest to him. And yet we see story after story of Jesus loving those who have betrayed him. We see it in how he offers assurance about their future, offers encouragement for their lives, offers a warning about what their future will look like. But nowhere do we more see his love for those who betray him than in the fact that he still goes to the cross, that he loves his followers. He loves his disciples so much that he goes and dies this death in their stead, that he goes to, the, uh, to great lengths to give them forgiveness. He goes and dies this death to be faithful to his faithless betrayers. And I want to, I want to, spend some time on, on what this then shows us. What is this passage? What does Luke 22 tell us about Jesus and tell, uh, tell us about who we are as people in this room? What does this passage tell us about Jesus and about us? Well, the first thing that we see as we look throughout all of Luke 22 is that as we see Jesus' love for imperfect people. All throughout this passage, we see Jesus' love for imperfect people. We see it in how he treats Peter who betrays him and yet he loves so thoroughly. We see in all of his disciples who all betray him and yet he shows so much love for them all. Jesus exhibits so much love here for imperfect people. And this is, this is good news for us because we're all imperfect people. All of us, you and me. And we demonstrate that as we betray Jesus in the very ways that he is betrayed in this passage we betray Jesus in the same way that he, that he is betrayed here, that, that we ignore what Jesus tells us to focus on. We think that what's on our mind is more important than what he has for us. We, we don't do what he has called us to do. Uh, maybe we haven't flat out denied him like Peter does, but if you're like me, there's been times when I've tried to lessen that part. I, I, I cover up that Jesus aspect of my life when, when things are difficult or when I'm around certain people. We all betray Jesus in the same ways that his followers betray him in this passage. And maybe we're starting to get defensive. Like, oh, I would never do that. Uh, again, that's what his disciples said too while they were doing exactly these things. We all demonstrate that we are imperfect people. And yet what we see in this passage, what we see in our lives is Jesus demonstrates even more love, more love than we can ever, uh, ever uh, more than we can ever betray him. That he too knows in advance that we will turn away from him and how we will turn away. And yet he still loves us. He still assures us. He still encourages us. He still warns us. He still goes to the cross in our stead. He still dies on our behalf. I mean, think about it in this way. Look at how Jesus treats Judas in this passage The hand of one who will betray me is at this table. And there he is, boys, go and get him. He doesn't do that. When he's in the garden and Judas comes up to him, he talks to him so tenderly and sweetly. If Judas betraying Jesus with a kiss doesn't stop Jesus from loving him, well, what could we possibly do that would stop Jesus from loving us? We see instead that Jesus meets us with perfect love because Jesus loves imperfect people. And then second, we see that Jesus works through imperfect people. And Jesus works through imperfect people. The failure, Peter's or all of the disciples is not final that their, uh, their mistakes do not disqualify them from what God might do in their lives going forward. You see that in, in Jesus' words to the disciples as a, as a whole. You are failing me tonight. You have wrong ideas about what the kingdom will be, and yet you still have a place in that kingdom. We see it in, in Jesus' encouragement to Peter. You will deny me three times this night, but you are the one that I will work through to encourage the brothers, to strengthen my followers. And it wasn't Peter's uh, sinlessness or his perfection or him being more gifted than other people or, or him having a really, a really big skill set. That's not the reason why Jesus still works for him. In fact, Peter had none of those things. He, he demonstrated that he was not faithful. He was not sinless. But instead, it was, it, was his will, it was his turning back to Jesus. It was his repentance, not his sinlessness, that demonstrated his faith that showed he was worthy to continue to be worked through. And, and when I think about our lives, that we might think, well, I have I've something in my past, or I have these sins in my life, or I don't feel uh, gifted enough. I, I don't feel capable to do these things. And yet what we see in the life of people, uh, the, the life of Peter, that it's not perfection that's required, but it is repentance It isn't that we need to be experts in things, but as we rely on Jesus for all things, as we turn to him alone for all things, those are the people that Jesus works through. Jesus works through imperfect people. And so our question for us, as we look at the the encouraging words that Jesus gave to Peter, when you have turned again, strengthen the brothers. Well, how can we, people who have turned again and again to Jesus, who've known our need for repentance, and have continued to repent to him. How can we who have turned be the people that Jesus works through to strengthen the brothers and sisters of this church? How can we who have turned again to Jesus be the people that Jesus works through to strengthen the brothers and sisters of this church? I mean, it might look like, or uh, before I get to that, the what we see in this passage is that the, the, all of us, there's, there's parts of our past, our stories, our histories, our, our uh, demonstrations of showing that we are imperfect people. Those are the very things that Jesus uses to show other imperfect people that they're the very type of people that Jesus loves to love. That our stories, our pasts can be used in such a way to show others the love of Jesus, to strengthen them to know him more. So what does this look like for us to do here at this church, to be part of strengthening the brothers and sisters here? Well, it might mean joining a life group. That in a life group, you'll find people who have similar stories to yours, who have gone through something that you've gone through. And your willingness to share, your willingness to show how how Jesus worked through that time, well, that might be the very thing that Jesus uses to strengthen others around you. And you might say, well, I'm not, I'm not really good uh, are around other people. And that's perfect. Jesus works through imperfect people. Or it might look like being part of our cafe team, helping ensure that we all have coffee and donuts in the morning, which we love. Or greeting people, that there are new people coming all the time, people who walk in our doors not feeling known, that you can be part of helping others feel known here or serving in any number of the, 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 the groups that we have here at Calvary. And we might think, well, I don't really feel capable of doing such a thing. Perfect. Jesus works through imperfect people. And as we see the life of Peter, that he's not just one who strengthens the brothers and sisters, he is the person that Jesus works through to bring about the church as a whole, that he is reaching out, he's helping others know Jesus for the first time. So how can we, as imperfect people, be the ones that Jesus works through to help bring other imperfect people to know him for the first time? This might involve sitting with kids at a table on April 8th, helping show them the story of Jesus' resurrection through Easter eggs. And we might say, well, I don't, I don't really like work, or don't feel, feel good about working with kids. Perfect. Jesus works through imperfect people. Or it might involve talking to your neighbors Helping tell them about why Easter is so important, so meaningful to you, why your life is never the the same because Jesus has come and died and raised again. And you might say, well, I, I don't even know what I would say. Perfect. Jesus works through imperfect people. See, what we find in this passage is what we've called our series. It's written here in the corner, good news for all people. That as we look at this passage, as we look at the, the betrayals of Jesus' closest followers, it might help us realize that we have betrayed Jesus in the same way. Every one of Jesus' followers have betrayed him. And yet what is good news? What is good news here in this passage is that as we look at every single one of these betrayers, they are matched, uh, exceeded with the love that Jesus shows. That while all of his followers have betrayed him, all of his followers have been so lavishly loved. Jesus is the betrayed king. Still to this day, and still to this day, he constantly, endlessly, perfectly, never stops loving. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so grateful for reminders, for stories of people who look just like us, that as we read about Peter, as we read about the disciples, especially here in this chapter, it is as if a mirror was set on top of our Bible that we see things that we've done, we've seen behaviors we've exhibited. We see competition jostling over who's better. We see people turning away when it gets hard. We see people focused on ideas that aren't for their best, that aren't from you. And yet we see you loving, constantly loving. We are so grateful for your grace that you demonstrate by going to the cross. We are so grateful for your grace that you demonstrate daily, hourly even, as we continue to turn away from you. That you are the God who showed love, perfect love by dying this death that should have been ours. And you are this God who shows love, perfect love by kindly, graciously, continuing with us even as we betray you constantly. We can never repay you and that is what makes a grace. You've done all this out of your love for us. And so it's to you and you alone we pray. Amen.